Our Bibles to Matthew chapter 12 this morning. Matthew chapter 12, we are in the end of uh, this great chapter, verses 38 to 50 will be our focus this morning. If you're new here, uh, one of the things that marks us as a church, one of the things that we prize and value deeply is teaching the Bible by teaching the Bible, simply making our way straight through books of the Bible, not skipping over passages or Uh, ignoring texts, but simply allowing the Bible to speak on its own terms. And we've been making our way through the Gospel of Matthew for some time under the heading, The King and His Kingdom. We understand uh, Matthew's Gospel really to be about Jesus as the King over the Kingdom of Heaven. Uh, He reigns with authority over the Kingdom of Heaven, which uh, consists of disciples from every nation who obey all that He has commanded. Jesus, all authority over the Kingdom. Uh, over all of his disciples, consisting of disciples from all nations. That is what Matthew is about. And here in Matthew chapter 12, the text that we're about to read, we find ourselves really at ground zero of a portion of Matthew that highlights the opposition that Jesus faces as he comes to earth and the opposition that those who follow him can also expect to face if they walk in faithfulness with Christ. And so here we are, Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 38. As you turn there, you'll read these words. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister, and mother. This is the Word of God. Let's bow and pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning what we ask week in and week out, and that is that by Your Spirit, You would give us understanding, and not simply intellectual understanding, but that You would give us understanding in our hearts, that You would penetrate our hearts with Your Word, that you would show us Jesus as being worthy of our faith, that we would bow before him and follow him, 
and so be saved from sin and death. Lord, we thank you that Jesus the King offers us membership in his kingdom. And we pray that we would find ourselves in his kingdom this morning through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm sure if you watch the news at all, you'll know that the political season is in full swing and we are up and running and having just a grand old time. I wonder if you've ever seen one of those programs that happens right after a political debate in which they gather a bunch of uh, seemingly undecided voters and allow them to share their thoughts about the way that the debate played out. It's always interesting to me to see one of these things happen because essentially what they do is they get a group of people together in a room and they allow them all to sit back and say, convince me. Convince me. Why are you worthy of my vote? Now, I want to be clear here that Jesus is not running for office. Jesus is the king. He does not need your vote to be the king. He has always been the king. He always will be the king. It's simply a matter of whether you'll acknowledge it or not. But in many respects, Matthew has been presenting Jesus to us as worthy, not of our vote, but of our entire lives. He's been presenting Jesus to us as someone who is worthy to follow, to leave everything in order to follow, as a matter of fact. And all throughout this gospel, we've encountered three different groups of people that you might describe as either decidedly for Jesus, decidedly against Jesus, or just simply undecided about Jesus. Those are roughly the same categories that you'll find in any group of voters, those who know decidedly who they will vote for, those who know who they definitely will not vote for, and those who are undecided about the whole thing. In Matthew's gospel, for instance, we have Matthew himself, chapter 9, verse 9, who leaves everything in order to follow Jesus decidedly for him. In chapter 12 and verse 23, we have the Pharisees who claim that Jesus is in league with Satan. They are decidedly against him. And we have the crowds, chapter 12, verse 22, who seem to be somewhat undecided. Can this be the son of David? What I want us to do this morning as we examine the text that we've read is to turn the light for a moment, if you will, away from Jesus and on, on ourselves. And I want us to examine whether or not you and I fall into any of the three categories that we've just described. Decidedly for Jesus, decidedly against him, or simply undecided about this whole gospel thing. What I want us to do is to shine the light on our own hearts and examine what our unbelief or belief says about us. Who are we? What do we, what do we desire? What are we after? How does that relate to Jesus? The way that this passage breaks down, really, is it breaks into three portraits, if you will, of unbelief or belief. In verses 38 to 42, we have a picture of unbelief. And this portrait that is painted for us by Matthew, we might call a portrait of sign-seeking unbelief. The sign-seekers, those who want a display of power, those who say, in effect, to God, prove it. Convince me. In verses 43 through verses uh, 45, we have a portrait of unbelief that we might call people who are put in order and yet worse off. 
put in order, and yet worse off. And then finally, in verses 46 to 50, we have a portrait of belief, praise God, of those who might be described as being closer than family. Closer than family. But I want us to look first at this portrait of unbelief. Sign-seeking unbelief. Verse 38 begins by saying that some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Stop. When I first read this passage this week, I thought to myself, what a load of baloney. That is the biggest lie. It's it's almost hard to wrap my mind around the audacity of a statement like that. I mean, we've just come in Matthew's Gospel from an account in which Jesus is presented with a man who is demon-oppressed, who is blind and mute, and Jesus heals him. It's a miraculous healing. The Pharisees, in, in response to this healing, claim that Jesus is in line with Beelzebul. He's satanic. He's demonic. That's the only way he could have done what he's just done. They've seen miracles, So how is it now that they can come around and say, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you? Now I want you to notice that when Jesus is reasoning with them about how ridiculous it is to say that he casts out demons by Beelzebul, he says in verse 27 of chapter 12, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? So Jesus grants that there were Jews who could perform exorcisms, and that's actually the entire problem for the Pharisees. The word that they use here for sign is interesting because it it sort of designates an unmistakable sign from heaven. I mean, they would have argued, Jesus, that's the problem. That's the problem for us. Our sons can do what you're doing, so give us something unmistakable. I mean, it's like Elijah was able to call down fire from heaven. Can't you do something like that that would make us believe that you are worthy of our faith. We wish to see a sign from you. Now, you don't have to make the Bible relevant. It's relevant. Because I can virtually guarantee you that if you've never thought this, you know someone who has. If God would just write His name in the heavens, if He would just sign out in the stars, Jesus is Lord. If I could see Him in my cereal in the morning, then I would believe. Give me something unmistakable. God, prove it. But notice how Jesus responds. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Jesus will not play the game. Jesus is not a miracle worker on demand who caters to a posture of settled unbelief. Here is the challenge, friends. The posture that issues the question or the demand for a sign is not a posture, whatever we might say, it is not a posture of, if God would give me sufficient evidence, I would believe. No, it is a challenge. God, you cannot give me sufficient evidence, therefore I will not believe. We were considering this passage as elders on Monday night, and Ken Whistler brought up this 
brilliant illustration of a debate that he once witnessed between Christians and an atheist, in which the atheist began their opening argument. Show us a miracle. And if you could just show us a miracle, we would believe. And of course, you know as well as I know that the Christians could not show a miracle, and therefore, unbelief remained resolute. But Jesus will absolutely not play the game. So rather than giving them a sign, he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation, that is, an unfaithful generation. He's speaking to his countrymen, ask for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. He says, you're going to see a sign, but it's going to be after the fact. It's going to be a retroactive sign. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Here Jesus is unmistakably referring to the resurrection as the sign that he is who he says he is. Now, he refers to Jonah. You'll know the story of Jonah. Jonah chapter 2, Jonah swallowed by a great fish. And in brilliant language in the ESV, at the end of chapter 2, beginning of chapter 3, he is vomited back onto dry land. That's Jonah the prophet, vomited up by a great fish. You say, Pastor, you can't possibly take that. Literally, you can't possibly imagine that I would believe that Jonah was in the belly of the great fish. I'm only asking you to take that story as Jesus takes it, which seems to be quite literally, doesn't it? Jesus says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then, of course, he will rise. Friends, there is no greater sign that can be given to this world than the resurrection of Jesus, that he is who he says he is. And it is an irrefutable sign. If it were refutable, it would have already been refuted. Yeah? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that after Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared to 500 brothers. Here, Jesus just casually sort of refers to the resurrection. Matthew records it in this gospel. Understand this, that in the day and age in which the writings of the New Testament were being written, if someone could legitimately dispute the resurrection of Jesus, they would have. I mean, the burden of proof is not on Christianity. It's on unbelief. Present the body. Jesus has been raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is the King above all kings. But here's what's so absolutely delicious about this passage. Is I want you to notice that Jesus pivots as quickly as possible away from signs and he points to sermons. Look at the Bible. He turns away from signs and points to sermons. No sign will be given to it except for the resurrection. Verse 41 the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the vomiting up of Jonah? No. They repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah chapter 3, as he goes into the city of Nineveh, with five words he turns the city upside down, because God has ordained that faith will be created in the hearts of men and women 
not by miraculous shows of power, but through the power that is inherent in His Word. Yet five days and Nineveh will be overturned. That's, that's all it took. Second example, verse 42. The Queen of the South, you'll find this in 1 Kings chapter 10, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. God grants Solomon wisdom that is unmatched. The Queen of Sheba comes and listens to Solomon speak. In the ESV, we read that as she listened to Solomon speak, verse 5, 1 Kings 10, verse 5, there was, quote, no more breath in her. She was breathless. Now what Jesus is doing here is he is confronting this sort of unbelief that says, I must be convinced by shows of miraculous power. What Jesus does is he confronts that. Notice, through the example of pagan Gentiles, that there was absolutely nothing that could be done to generate faith in this generation apart from the Word of God. Get that. This is so vital, so important to everything we do as a church, to our identity, to who we are. Friends, if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, let me just be as clear as I possibly can. We are not seeking to sort of manipulate you emotionally into the kingdom. We are not seeking to sort of wow you and razzle-dazzle you into the kingdom. We are seeking to just simply unfold what God has said in His Word so that in His power He might draw you to faith in Jesus, that you might see <coughs> excuse me, that you stand condemned because of your sins, but that Jesus has taken your condemnation for you on the cross and He's been raised from the dead God received His payment on your behalf, that believing in that word of promise, you might have eternal life. There is this incredible parable that Jesus tells in Luke's Gospel. And it sort of, it sort of offsets this, this mentality that if God would simply show me enough, then I would believe. I submit you would not. I submit that for sign-seeking unbelief, this is you this morning, you're saying, God, just give me a sign. I submit to you there is nothing that God could do or show you to make you believe. You say, Pastor, that's a pretty radical statement. How could you possibly say that? Because the Bible says that. There's a parable in Luke chapter 16 in which Jesus tells the story of a rich man and a man named Lazarus. Lazarus sits outside the rich man's home day in and day out seeking for food. The rich man callously passes by time and time again. And when both of these men die and find themselves in eternity, it is the rich man who finds himself in hell and Lazarus, the poor man, who finds himself in heaven. Now, the rich man, in his agony, says to Abraham, would you let me go back and tell my family about how bad it is here? Because if they knew how bad it was here, they would believe. Abraham, in the parable that Jesus tells, says this, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Did you catch that? 
if they will not listen to the Bible, you can't show them anything. Because friends, faith does not come from seeing. It comes from hearing. Romans chapter 10, verse 17, the Apostle Paul writes, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. So I ask you this morning, what is your faith based on? What is the foundation of your faith in Christ? Is it that you've been shown miraculous power? Have you been impressed into the kingdom or have you heard the Word of God? That is what's at issue. Now, it's fascinating to me, Jesus here in this text refers to Himself in in two different uh, places as being greater than. You could go all the way back to chapter 12 and verse 6 when the greater thans begin. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here, Jesus referring to Himself. Here in this passage, something greater than Jonah is here, verse 41. Then again, verse 42, something greater than Solomon is here. Here we have the priesthood as it's represented by the the temple and the sacrifice, etc. We have the ministry of the Word as represented by the prophets. And we have the ministry of the kings as represented by Solomon. And Jesus says, I am greater than all of it. I am greater than the temple because I will offer the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. They've all pointed to me. I am greater than the prophets because I not only speak the Word of God, I am the Word of God. Listen to me. I am greater than the kings because I am the king to whom all the other kings pointed. So that Jesus is saying here to these sign-seeking unbelievers, simply listen to me. So will you listen? What is your faith based on this morning? If you are a sign-seeking unbeliever, know this. There is no greater witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ than thus saith the Lord. Secondly, we have this second portrait. Not of sign-seeking unbelievers, but of those who are put in order and yet are worse off. Those who are put in order and yet are worse off. Look at verse 43. Jesus tells this puzzling most mysterious parable. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. There's part of our point. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person, here we go, is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. I imagine a sort of contemporary retelling of this story for our context would be somewhat along the lines of you and I going into the city of Newcastle and finding a home that's been foreclosed on. It's been sitting for a long time. There are squatters in the home and we decide that we're going to purchase it, we're going to renovate it, and we're going to sell it. So we buy the home and we begin to kick the people out who've been staying there. We clean it up. We put a fresh coat of paint on, a new, new carpet it goes down, new windows go in, new roof goes on. We spend the, the money that we need to put it back in order. And instead of someone moving in immediately, we have it on the market for 
months, which give way to years, which then brings back the squatters, right? The point is, no one new has moved in. Now, I'm sure you can see that that is the emphasis of this parable that Jesus tells. What good is it to cast out demons if no one new enters in? It's only a matter of time before seven other spirits more evil than the original come along with him to take residence there. And in telling this story, Jesus gives us a parable that, that sort of gets to the heart of how dangerous it is, friends, listen, to sort of benefit from the tangential, sort of peripheral benefits of Christianity and yet not bow the knee to Jesus. It's not enough. Jesus has come very clearly, very literally in the Gospel of Matthew, casting out demons from the people. Israel rejoiced to see the demons cast out and to see the hungry fed with uh, just a few loaves and all the miracles of Jesus. There's great fanfare that sort of attends all of that business. But Jesus says, your generation is like one from whom demons have been cast out, sort of enjoying the benefits of my coming without placing faith in me, and it will only be a matter of time before the last state of this generation is worse than the first. You read the history books, 70 AD. Judgment comes. It is not enough simply to benefit from the peripheral blessings of Christianity apart from Christ. Now, we're not in the business here of casting out demons. I've never cast out a demon. I've never attempted to cast out a demon. But if you think that we are far from this sort of mentality of getting what we can from Christianity without Christ, friends, there are so many ways in which we sort of benefit from the periphery, and yet don't place faith in Jesus. Perhaps you're here because you've just simply wanted a loving community. Friends, we are not disappointed that you found that. We're glad that you found that. But on that day, having been part of a loving community will not be enough. Some of you, I'd imagine, began to come to First Baptist when you had children. You thought to yourself, well, certainly I need to raise my children in an environment in which they're going to get sound moral teaching, they're going to be told the right things to do, you should do good things and not do bad things. You will get that here. But understand, on that day, it is not enough. You may have walked through these doors at a low point in your life because you were suffering and you just needed some relief, and you may have found people here who will pray for you and care for you and love you, Praise God that you have found that. But on that day, it will not be enough. Do you understand? It is entirely possible to encounter Jesus and be put in order and yet be worse off than ever before. Why? Why is it, why is it so wrong to benefit from moral teaching apart from Jesus? Why is it so wrong to find loving community apart from Jesus. It's wrong because it keeps you from Jesus. It's wrong because you become, you become sort of desensitized. You start to think that you're saved by your goodness, and you're not. 
You become uh, desensitized. You begin to think that you belong because people love you, but you don't. Friends, the only thing that will matter on that day is whether you and I have bowed the knee to Jesus. So I ask, have you been put in order and yet are awaiting the day when you'll be worse off? Friends, now is the time. Today is the day of decision. Quit putting it off. And again, I am grateful, we are grateful as elders and as staff that you find these wonderful benefits here at First Baptist. We pray that you find them in greater, uh, greater capacity. However, more than anything else, we want you to find Jesus. We want you to find Christ. We want you to be forgiven of your sins. We want Him to take residence in your life. C.S. Lewis, writing in Mere Christianity, picks up on this imagery, and I want you to listen, and I want you to listen how, how he begins at first to sound a lot like what Jesus is describing as, as bad, until he hits us with his very last line. Lewis says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Now, if I can gently disagree with C.S. Lewis this morning of all the brash and bold things that I've attempted to do in my life, I would just, I would just suggest that it's not that Lewis prepares the house, or, or Jesus prepares the house and then comes and lives in it. He comes and lives in it, and then he renovates. But don't miss the point. He comes and lives in it. Will you trust in Jesus this morning? We have this portrait of unbelieving sign-seeking, and we have this portrait of those who are put in order yet worse off for it. And then thirdly and finally, we have this portrait of belief, praise God, of those who to Jesus are closer than family. We need to reckon with this. If we are going to take the gospel seriously, we must be, we don't have the option, we must be a counter-cultural force in our society. We live in a culture which rightly, understand rightly, prizes and values family. But look at this little vignette of Jesus' interaction with his own blood family, beginning in verse 46. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You know, we 
are so accustomed to hearing that phrase that blood is thicker than water. But we might contend from this passage that spirit is thicker than blood. That there is a family in the eyes of Jesus that transcend all other relational categories. I want you to understand, look at the passage, Jesus' family. The people that you think would be the most inside are outside. Do you see that? His mother and his brothers are outside. Now, by grace, before the story's over, they will be brought in. They will believe. But at this point, you get the sense that they come on the scene sort of to rescue Jesus from what they, they sort of determine as being this fanatical mission. They, they think he's out of his mind. They're coming to deliver him from the opposition. They want to rescue him from the opposition. They don't want to lean into who Jesus is. Here, Mary herself and Jude and James. Can we, can we please speak to Jesus? We have, I just want to get him. Maybe we could just get him to calm down for a minute, get him out of the, the limelight. Maybe he'll change his message for next week, be a little less intense. And Jesus, in response to this, simply declares that those who do the will of God are my brother and sister and mother. Simply put, the relationships that we enjoy together as believers transcend and are more important than any other relationships that we enjoy. I mean, Jesus himself has said this as he's preached to his disciples. Listen to this, listen to this charge Chapter 10, verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I mean, that is categorical. Some of the other gospels says he doesn't hate his father and his mother, and that's, that's hyperbolic. He, what Jesus is saying is there should be no comparison in your love for me when considered in light of your love for others. Love me First and foremost, primarily, supremely. And what you find is that for those who give Jesus that kind of love, Jesus returns that love with a love that calls you and I sons and daughters of the living God. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. I don't want you to think that what Jesus here is teaching is that you can become his mother, sister, or brother by doing good works. The will of God, first and foremost, is that all who would look on the Son and believe in him would have eternal life. That's John's gospel. It is God's will, first and foremost, that you believe, that you turn from your sins, and that you trust in him. And having done so, you become the very sons and daughters of God. John, in his first letter, puts it so brilliantly. Chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. We sang about it this morning. The love of the Father. John here says, this is of a completely different kind. This is a different category of love. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. This is qualitative that we should be called children of God, and so we are. 
the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know, we know, not we feel, we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Here's the wonder of the King of Kings. Jesus does not simply offer you membership in His kingdom. He offers you membership in His family. And in order to purchase for you your rights of adoption, the Son of God went to the cross and cried out, Father, why have You forsaken Me? Jesus is willing to become as one outside of the family. That through His death and His resurrection, you and I might be brought near. Here is a portrait of belief. Who am I? If I believe in Jesus, who am I? Regardless of what anyone else might tell me, I, against better judgment, some of you will know, started a Facebook page this past week. And boy, do I mean against better judgment. One of my old high school friends reached out to me, and, 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 and as, almost as soon as I accepted the request, I saw a post, do not tell me about your religion. Your religion is bigotry. So while the world calls me a bigot, Jesus calls me his brother. While the world calls me delusional, Jesus calls me his brother. While the world persecutes and hates and derides and opposes me, even as it's opposed Jesus, the Father looks at me and says, Loved, is this you? Because I want to invite you this morning, if you find yourself in either of the first two camps looking for a sign, perhaps sort of not against Jesus, but just not, not decidedly for Him, I want to give you this opportunity to come to Him. To come to Him, to be adopted into His family. I want to give you this opportunity to confess your sins before Him. Confess you have you have disobeyed the law of God, that you stand condemned because of your sins, but you believe that Jesus alone can bring you into His family. He did that through His death and His resurrection. All that you must do is believe. As we bow and pray together, I want to pray a prayer that you might make your own as we consider these things asking for the Lord Himself to bless His Word with power, that you might be drawn to Jesus, that you might move from unbelief to belief. Father, there is no greater sign this morning 
of who you are and what you've done in Jesus than the empty tomb. The world of unbelief stands, as it were, with its, its hand covering its mouth before the empty tomb. And yet, the most powerful, the most potent, the most eternal witness to Jesus and His death and resurrection is Your Word. Lord, many of us have benefited from some of the secondary and even tertiary blessings that come through Jesus. We've had a loving community. We've been taught right and wrong. We've been surrounded by positivity. And yet we confess that before the judgment seat of God, all of that is as nothing. The question that Jesus will one day in our Gospel ask Peter will be asked of us, who do you say that I am? Lord, we confess that You are the Son of David, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You have come to save Your people from their sins. And so, in order to be Your people, we admit that we do indeed have sins. We sin because we are sinners. And we are in need of Your grace. Lord, there is nothing that we could do to make You accept us. There is nothing that we could do to force our way into Your family. But Jesus, You have come And You have done all of the work for us. You have lived perfectly in light of the law of God, never sinning, never wandering. Even in Your heart, You were pure and holy. And the judgment that we deserve, You took upon Yourself. You went to the cross and stood cursed Curses everyone who hangs on a tree. You cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the silence of the Father proclaimed the answer, I have forsaken you because of the sins of my people. And yet you burst forth on that glorious day. The grave could not hold you. The Father accepted the payment of Jesus on our behalf. And so by faith, we lay hold of the promise of forgiveness and eternal life. By faith, we move out of the realm of unbelief and into the realm of belief. Closer than family, delighted in by the Father, siblings of the Son. Lord, hear our prayer. Forgive our sins. Grant that we might be your children forever. Amen.